This is Gulf Coast Life. I'm Mike Canary. Thanks for joining us. Southern police departments modernized and expanded during the early 20th century in response to the surge of African Americans moving into urban spaces. As departments grew, officers assumed responsibility for policing and maintaining Jim Crow laws and customs. While scholars have mostly focused on law enforcement's use of aggression and brutality as a means of maintaining African American subordination, black citizens of that time have often come across as powerless in their encounters with law enforcement. In his new book, Race, Crime, and Policing in the Jim Crow South, our guest today explores the various ways African Americans responded to the expansion of police departments in the early 20th century South, including thousands of examples of African Americans seemingly working with law enforcement in order to, in some sense, take advantage of the only government institution they had access to, the police department. Dr. Brandon Jett is a history professor at Florida Southwestern State College. Brandon, welcome back to the show. Hey, Mike. Thanks for having me. If you'd like to engage with the show and your fellow listeners about this conversation or any of our shows, find us on Facebook. We're at WGCU Public Media. And on Twitter, we're at WGCU. Use the hashtag GCL. So what made you decide to write this book and how far back was that? Yeah, uh, Mike, this is a question all historians love to get. Uh, and typically, it, it surrounds this idea of the aha moment in historical research, where you're going through the archives and you come across this one letter, this one document that really opens your eyes to this, this brand new line of thinking that's really going to drastically change uh, how historians and other scholars have approached a particular topic. Unfortunately for me, I never had one singular aha moment where it all became clear. But in my case, it was thousands of smaller aha moments as I was going through these police files originally from the Memphis Police Department dating back to 1917 up through 1945. And I was, I was going through these, these reports uh, of homicides. I kept coming across these examples of African-Americans calling the police, of African-Americans acting as witnesses during police investigations. Uh, and so that's what my aha moment was because all we know about race and policing in the Jim Crow South is that police departments were incredibly violent, incredibly brutal, and that the criminal justice system didn't treat crimes against African Americans in the same way that they treated crimes against white people. And so it was really interesting to me, why in the world would African Americans call the cops uh, if, if their complaints wouldn't be taken seriously? Why in the world would you act as a witness if, if your testimony wouldn't really be necessary? Uh, and so I wanted to explore that, that phenomenon a little bit. What was compelling these people who really have no reason to trust the police to engage in this kind of activity that seems so counterintuitive. So this was was back in, I started my PhD program in 2012. So from 2012 up through, through 2017, when I was going through the process of researching and writing the dissertation. And so right in the middle of all, of, of, of all this is the Trayvon Martin case. Uh, and then that, that kind of bled into the Michael Brown shooting and then Black Lives Matter. And so all of a sudden, policing becomes this, this, this kind of flashpoint topic that, that people are really interested in, wanting to know more about the history behind it. Uh, and, and what changes we could make to maybe improve the relationship between police and African-Americans. So that's kind of where this all grew out of. Um, Memphis, Birmingham, New Orleans, 1917-ish to 1945-ish. What was the decision behind that being your sort of data set? Yeah, that, that's a good question. Um, Memphis, New Orleans, and Birmingham were interesting cities, as, as anyone who's been to them know. Uh, but they're also, in many ways, reflective of some of the changes that were going on in the South more broadly. So I, I emphasize in the book the commonalities between the three cities, not necessarily their differences, because they're going through some of these processes of change that occurred across the South after the Civil War in this period that uh, was defined by the term the New South. This was supposed to be something different than what had existed in the antebellum South, so not as 
reliant on on cotton agriculture, not reliant on slave-based production of that that agricultural product. Um, and so, what these cities are doing is they're 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 expanding in terms of their population base. More and more migrants are moving from the rural South into the urban South. Uh, they're also diversifying economically, um, investing in in manufacturing. Um, it's still largely related to agricultural, but nonetheless trying to change the image uh, of of the economic base of the South in in these urban spaces. Uh, but they're also investing in police departments. And the reason why they're investing in police departments at this particular point in time, now these, these, these aren't new. Police departments had existed in one shape or another in some cities in the South, in New Orleans in particular, Charleston, South Carolina, uh, for quite some time. And they were largely focused on controlling the slave population, part of slave patrols. Uh, but there's something different about this, this early 20th century period. Um, and that is that police departments look more like we uh, recognize police departments today. They're wearing uniforms, they're walking around on their beats, they have these, these kind of professional organizations. Uh, they've got police captains and deputies and, and different levels. They've got homicide units, they've got, they've got drug units and things like that. And so I was really looking at this, this kind of period in time where the South is changing, the South is becoming more urban, uh, and in many ways, they're embracing police departments as a means to monitor and control these swelling populations of people that are moving into these cities. Those old methods of social control, like lynching, that were done extra legally are no longer working in these urban spaces. Uh, in addition to no longer being all that effective, they're also discouraging investment from outside investors, largely from northern cities. No one wants to invest in a city where mobs are running rampant and burning down buildings. Um, and so it's this, this kind of confluence of factors that's occurring in Memphis, Birmingham, and New Orleans, uh, but also other southern cities that really made that the focus uh, geographically, but also in terms of the chronology. And presumably, because they were modernizing, there's good data on it. You know, there's lots of police reports to go through. Like They actually collected information in a way that when things were being done extrajudicially, there's no information on that except stories people told. Absolutely. That's one of the great developments, at least being a historian, uh, of police departments largely in the 20th century, their records are significantly better than you would find um, in the 19th century. So that, that certainly guided my decision as well. So let's uh, start with some first principles here. Just um, what exactly is meant by Jim Crow? Timeline, origin, arc, yeah. um, how formalized was it? Yeah, great question. A lot of people have heard of the phrase Jim Crow, uh, but I think we have a lot of different competing conceptions of what that means. And as I tell students in my class, um, I ask them, what, what does Jim Crow mean to you? The first thing they say is segregation. Uh, and, and segregation was certainly part of the Jim Crow system. Um, but the way I defy, define Jim Crow is that it is this reimposition of a racial hierarchy, um, particularly in the South uh, in terms of my book and, and kind of um, other studies. But this, this occurred across the country. So after slavery is abolished, um, there is a new system that is implemented. Uh, of, of white supremacy, and that is what Jim Crow is. So it involves segregation. It involves disenfranchisement. Uh, it involves limiting opportunities for African Americans and providing more opportunities uh, for white residents. Um, so it's this, it's this kind of broad system that is both formal, institutionalized, but also informal and extra legal uh, that is designed to maintain black subordination uh, and promote white supremacy. Um, the time period, it, it kind of fluctuates, but, but the general parameters are 1890 um, when we begin to see some of these laws about voting and segregation become formalized in the southern state legislatures up through 1965 um, with the Civil Rights Act and the Voting Rights Act. So the police departments in these three cities and in other southern cities, it was, it was there was no secret that Jim Crow was being enforced. Absolutely not. That was, Absolutely just, that not. was just part of the culture. 
It was part and parcel of, of what the police were supposed to do. Um, and if you could just think about what Jim Crow was legally, it was a series of laws. Uh, and if those laws were violated by African Americans or, or by whites on the flip side, uh, it was largely up to the police to, to uh, enforce those laws. So what was understood or what, what is understood about that era that you have shined new light that expands that understanding? Kind of try to draw that contrast. Yeah, uh, for, for non-specialists, uh, as simply as I can put it, I, I am shedding light on the ways in which African-Americans are using the police, this institution that was not designed to benefit black communities. Uh, in fact, it's designed to impose black subordination on black communities. Um, but I'm looking at the ways in which African-Americans were able to exercise some semblance of leverage in their interactions with, with police officers uh, during the investigation of suspected criminal activity. And so I wanted to, to kind of provide an argument that gives gives kind of nuance and, and in many ways power back to African-American communities who, as much as they distrusted the police and as much as they protested against police brutality uh, and were calling for equitable treatment, realized that they still had to live and operate within this system. And so I wanted to look at the ways in which they did that in ways that black communities or black individuals thought was to their benefit in that moment. So how did you um, do this research? Like, just describe, you know, did you spend a lot of time in libraries? Was this a lot of internet? Just kind of talk about how you came up with the stories and the data that started to paint this picture. Yeah, uh, I feel like the idea of research is often more exciting than what research actually looks like. Um, so a lot of my research was fortunately done digitally. Uh, I had some really great archivists in Shelby County, Tennessee, which is where Memphis is, uh, and, and in New Orleans that were able to send me digitized copies of police reports that they had in their archives. Uh, so that was really fantastic and really sped up the the process of going through thousands of documents and creating Microsoft Excel spreadsheets to analyze trends and data points. Uh, but I also made some really fantastic trips to to Memphis, Birmingham, and New Orleans and Washington, D.C. to go look at these local archives um, and, and at the Library of Congress uh, to look at NAACP papers, black newspapers, white southern newspapers in these cities. And then again, the bulk of the research was looking at uh, those those police reports and police records. One thing I found interesting that kind of comes out through this book is the importance or the role that uh, that a newspaper editorials played. A lot of you tracking the trends would come from editorials in black press and the mainstream press or whatever they called it mm -hmm. um, in a way that, I don't know, it seems kind of you know quaint today because of the world we live in. But back then, that was a big deal. Yeah, newspapers were a big deal back yeah. then, which you know they they are less and less so now, unfortunately. Um, and in a lot of ways, this is this is at least in black newspapers, this is one of the only pieces of of evidence that we have of of African American voices in many of these Jim Crow cities, at least in the early part of the 20th century. Uh, so those sources prove vital to to my larger arguments about the way that African Americans understood the police, the ways that they critiqued police, uh, and the ways that they were attempting to kind of navigate and negotiate this this system, which was obviously inequitable, and they knew that, uh, but recognizing that they still had had to kind of operate within it, at least for the time being, until, you know, Jim Crow could could be overturned, which they knew was kind of a long-term term goal. Um, but 
I think the really important part of the source base that I use is, of course, the black newspapers are important. The papers of the NAACP are important. But that that kind of by definition is a very kind of black middle class perspective. Those are the people who are writing those editorials. Largely, those are the people who are participating in, in the NAACP. Uh, but it's those street level interactions that I was able to find um, in those police reports that existed between African-Americans and law enforcement officers in these moments of investigation that I think really shed important light uh, on, on how regular people were, were able to exercise some influence. And I use that, that word cautiously. It's, mm-hmm. it's not like they're completely overturning the policing system, but some influence over the way police officers engaged with the black community, when and how police officers were invited into the black community to investigate those crimes. Um, And so it's kind of combining those two different source bases, these kind of middle-class perspectives where they're opining largely uh, about the police and then those street-level interactions where you get more of a kind of working-class African-American community um, actually engaging with police officers. Was the working-class people that were engaging with police officers in this way uh, fair administration advocates, that term fair administration, that seemed like that was driven by the middle-class blacks. but it wasn't just the middle class blacks that were doing this. It was trickling down, I yeah. guess you can say. Does that make? Yeah, that's that's fair. Um, so I use the phrase fair administration advocates uh, in the book to to kind of come up with a conceptual framework for what African-Americans were calling for. Because if you read the black editorials, uh, they are very critical of the police. Um, there's, there's one um, that's titled Killer Behind the Badge when, when critiquing the police departments. But at the same time, what you'll find in these black editorials uh, are, are editorialists and black writers calling for more police in their communities to help combat crime in those communities. Uh, but they're not doing that uncritically either. They're calling for better policing in their communities, treat black suspects and crime victims in the same way that you would treat white crime victims and suspects. So that's what those those fair administration advocates are calling for. And then the trickle down that I think you're referring to uh, is the actions of African-Americans. So in the wake of, of a homicide, um, an African-American man or woman might see someone get killed uh, and then they reach out to the police. They call the police. They they find a police officer on the street. They, they, they tell them what happened. They encourage them to come to the scene. They're providing testimony. They're providing evidence. In some cases, they're holding suspects uh, and turning them over to the police. And so I, I'm arguing that those behaviors are are part of that fair administration advocacy playing out in real time. And as I mentioned in the opener, the police department was basically the only government institution that African Americans had access to. You know, it was it was a, a main source of oppression, but Absolutely. it was their only way in to connecting with the the government. In a lot of ways, yeah. Um, African Americans, for the most part, could not vote in the Jim Crow South. Memphis is a little bit different. Um, a strong contingent of, of the African American population could vote, uh, but even that was somewhat tenuous um, because as as soon as the boss or the political machine uh, deemed it unuseful for them, uh, they could be dismissed relatively easily. Um, but African Americans are politically active in other ways outside of just formal voting. Um, And so they are attempting to get city institutions to respond to their community's needs, but that's often uh, not really responded to in ways that are are beneficial to the black community. They can't vote, so why would city officials... heed those calls. And so what I argue is that the police, as problematic as it was, it, it, it was one institution that African Americans, at least based on on the sources that I read, felt like they could rely on uh, to try and, and kind of squeeze out some semblance of service from, again, an institution that was not designed to provide them with service. 
You break up uh, um, your data sets into violent crime, which would be homicide and uh, assaults, mm -hmm. and then property crime, and then you look at it from those three cities. Were there trends that, that connected those three cities in terms of, you know, uh, African Americans, you know, being more willing to go to the police for these kinds of crimes? So the argument I make in the book is that the trends are shockingly similar in all three of these cities. And by extension, I would assume they would be similar in any city that you studied. Uh, oppressed groups have to interact with institutions that oppress them um, in myriad ways. And, and so um, one of the reasons I chose three cities was to kind of solidify those claims and, and kind of preclude some of the, the potential pushback that would say, well, this is just one city. So how, how can you really claim that, that this is something that is going on? Uh, across the region. Um, so now I've got three data sets that are kind of uh, mirroring each other in, in, the ter in, in terms of uh, f calls that are being placed to police departments, witness engagement, witness testimony, and some of the underlying motivations of why African Americans were willing to do this with an institution that they inherently distrusted. So the argument I make is you should be able to find these trends in any city across the South during the same time period. If you're just tuning in, I'm talking with uh, Florida Southwestern State College history professor, Dr. Brandon Jed, about his new book, Race, Crime, and Policing in the Jim Crow South. To engage with us and fellow listeners about our show, find us on Facebook. We're at WGCU Public Media. And on Twitter, we're at WGCU using the hashtag GCL. Do you have any information on whether um, blacks who were engaging with the police faced backlash for doing so? You know, that's a really good question. I didn't come across many examples of, of kind of community ostracization of, of African Americans who were calling the police um, or providing witness testimony um, kind of on the whole. But there was one one part in the book where I talk about assaults and, and the way in which uh, African-American women in particular would often use law enforcement or the threat of calling law enforcement uh, to kind of push back against abusive partners. Um, and, and there were cases of retribution um, being exacted after one of those phone calls was made. So for instance, there are examples of black women putting their, their husbands in jail or calling the police and having them arrested for an assault. Uh, and then those husbands getting out and, and again, assaulting uh, individuals. So there's evidence of that. But even within the black community, um, there was a phrase uh, applied to some African-Americans that worked with police as I think we would call them narcs uh, today to kind of use a colloquial term. Um, and they were called stool pigeons. Um, and so they were plants by by the police in, in African-American saloons uh, and things like that. And they would provide information um, that would have real dire consequences to, to members of the African-American community. So in a lot of cases, some of those people would, would maybe be pushed back against a little bit more. Uh, but, but in the context of what I'm looking at in the wake of homicides, thefts, or assaults, uh, I think a lot of members of the black community recognize that, that those were also very problematic issues in their communities too and wanted to see something done about them. The police weren't the only answer. Um, much like activists today, they're calling for greater investment in black communities, uh, more job opportunities, better educational opportunities. African-Americans in the Jim Crow South are calling for the exact same things. But I think in the context of the South in the Jim Crow period, they know that those are long-term goals and they're not going to be recognized all that easily or all that quickly. So they turn to the police as one potential solution that, that could have kind of real-time effects uh, and, and hopefully benefits um, over time. One thing they also started pushing for is, um, just to be clear, all three of these police departments had no black officers. 
Not during, from 1920 to 1945. Not through this era, but they started pushing for black officers. Can you just talk about that fight and, you know, when it became successful in those cities? Yeah, so these three cities weren't successful at, at, at um, getting black police officers on the force until after World War II. Um, the push for black police officers in these three cities was, was largely based on the idea that black police officers would know the black community better, the black community would trust them more, uh, and thus they would be better able to engage with the black community and ferret out who they deemed criminal elements in that community. Um, and so this push is is part of this like 1930s movement in these cities, uh, particularly among the NAACP, but other activist groups as well, uh, to kind of make policing better in black communities, eliminate brutality, eliminate distrust. And so the introduction of black officers was supposed to remedy that. Uh, now, they had been introduced in other cities um, in the South during this time period. And you'll see um, activists in New Orleans, Memphis, and Birmingham saying, see what they're doing in Houston, see what they're doing in Miami. Uh, it seems to be working. Um, as we find out later, after black officers are introduced uh, to police departments across the South and across the country, uh, is that there are some improvements for sure, uh, but in many ways, it's not the, the kind of uh, all-encompassing all fix that many activists were hoping that, that it was. So um, just the introduction of black officers doesn't really fix some of the underlying problems of distrust um, and, and inequitable treatment uh, of African Americans in the criminal justice system. Um, you started writing this in 2012. Um, the dialogue around police, systemic racism, violence, things like that has obviously burbled up uh, since Absolutely. that beginning of that uh, time. Um, how would you say what you uh, uncover or talk about in this book connects to the arguments that are happening today? I know that's like a big question. Sure. We probably spent a whole 30 minutes on and, that too. But. Yeah. Uh, so I think in a lot of ways, what I'm tracing here is kind of some is, is part of the root problem um, that that we see today, and that is that the institution of of the police uh, was at least in many southern cities and, and and northern cities as well introduced as a method of of controlling others those 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 social classes and in the case of the south those racial classes that that couldn't really be trusted uh, and that were being oppressed and the police kind of assumed the role of maintaining that oppression um, in in the late 19th and, and early 20th century. Um, at the same time, what I argue is, is that the efforts of African-Americans that I uncovered in my research and that I emphasize in my book uh, to kind of work through the police, to call for more police in their communities, but also demand better policing of their communities, uh, really kind of demonstrates just how long the push in the black community has been to improve policing. Uh, and it doesn't necessarily mean that black communities who are critical of law enforcement are necessarily anti-law law enforcement. Now, some people certainly are, uh, but it just sheds light on, on this demand for better, more equitable treatment of African-American communities by the police and, and criminal justice institutions more broadly. And so I end the book by suggesting that some of these calls for defunding the police or, or outright abolition of the police aren't just knee-jerk reactions to, to what we saw happen to George Floyd uh, a year ago. Instead, they're, they're expressions of just frustration on behalf of, of the black community and, and other communities in the country with 
the continued dismissal of some of the the demands and and recommendations and suggestions by not only academics and scholars and and activist organizations, but also real people living in those communities and interacting with the police. This has been at least a century uh, of effort to try and make policing more equitable and more responsive to the needs of the black community. And so I think what we're seeing in a lot of these communities where they're calling for defunding or or abolition, it's just that frustration that that nothing has changed. In fact, things have only gotten worse. So perhaps we need to fundamentally rethink uh, public safety um, and and maybe change the role of policing. And reading a book like this, it you know this may sound obvious because you know it seems like it's so far ago, um, but you know 1945, you know 17 to 45, there's still people alive who were kids in that South where the Jim Crow laws were being brazenly enforced by cops. Absolutely. So it it's worth remembering that it's not old; it's pretty contemporary in some ways. Absolutely. And Jim Crow didn't end in 1945. Um, Kind of formally, we say Jim Crow ended in 1965. But if you look at at things like um, segregation in schools, in many ways we are we are just as segregated today as we were then. Now it's not legally mandated; it's largely based off of where people live. Um, but the idea that that the difference between African-American communities and white communities has completely gone away because Jim Crow formally and legally ended. Uh, I think in many respects is, is just untrue when you look at the realities and the data on the ground. All right. Well, that is all the time we have. Dr. Brandon Judd is a professor of history at Florida Southwestern State College and author of the new book, Race, Crime, and Policing in the Jim Crow South. Brandon, thanks for your time. Yeah, thanks for having me. And if I could just say you can find the book at lsupress.org or on any of the online booksellers. All right. Uh, if you missed any of today's show, you can always hear episodes in their entirety on our website, wgcu.org gcl or wherever you get your podcasts. Our show today was produced by yours truly. Our director today is uh, Jared Gonzalez. Our social media coordinator is Tara Callaghan. For now, thank you for listening. I'm Mike Canary. This is NPR for Southwest Florida, 90.1 WGCU-FM, Fort Myers, Naples, and Punagorda and 91.7 WMKO Marco Island. We're a member-supported service of Florida Gulf Coast University.